Does it ever occur to you that we are inherently self-centered? And I'm not, I'm not talking so much about being selfish, although we certainly can be selfish at times. <clears throat> what I mean is this, our default view of, of life is to view life and faith from the perspective of self. I tend to act and react based on how things affect me. And so do you. It's a very individualistic approach to life. And that individualistic approach is even reflected at times in our spiritual language. Think how often we talk about a personal relationship with Jesus. Now, it's true that we each can have a personal connection with God, but the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God does not just deal with people on an individual basis. He deals with people also as groups. Under the Old Covenant, God did not just deal with individual Jews. He dealt with the Jewish people as a whole because they were His community of faith. Under the New Covenant, God does not just deal with Christians as individuals. He deals with the church as a whole because we are His community of faith. God deals with individuals and He deals with groups. And if we miss that, then we misunderstand a lot about how God chooses to work in His world. And beyond the community of faith, there's another group that God sometimes deals with. Sometimes he deals with nations. And usually he deals with a nation by dealing with their leader. God takes the leadership of nations seriously because the quality of a leader has a great impact for good or for bad on the people of that nation. And that's why throughout the Bible we see God often stepping into the lives of emperors and kings and Caesars. He wants to remind them that he is the ultimate source of authority and power in this world. And we see him exercise that power sometimes in dramatic ways by elevating certain people to leadership and by dethroning others and removing them from leadership. And when a leader ignores God, when a ruler acts in ways that are ungodly and evil, that nation will pay a price. And that's when God's patience may run out. And that's what we see happen to the nation of Babylon in Daniel chapter 5. God steps in and deals with a national leader in a dramatic way. Let's look at this passage together. Daniel 5.1 King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand, think about that, a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. These verses 
provide a vivid reminder that the Bible is a Middle Eastern book because Middle Eastern authors simply do not treat certain facts the way that we would like them to as products of the Western world. And we've already seen this a few times in the book. One clear example is how this author deals with names. The main people in this book, Daniel and his friend, have Hebrew names and Babylonian names. And the author regularly jumps back and forth between those names without much explanation and sometimes in ways that are rather confusing if we're not paying close attention. And now we see that this author is also cavalier about the passing of time. We've only encountered one king so far in this book, King Nebuchadnezzar. And now, without any introduction or any explanation, we encounter some new king named Belshazzar. Who is this guy? Where did he come from? When did he assume the throne? And what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? We're not told. Here are some things that we can piece together from historical records. Nebuchadnezzar passed the throne on to his son, Nabonidus. Nabonidus, in turn, had a son named Belshazzar. And when Belshazzar became an adult, it appears that he and Nabonidus served as kind of co-kings for a period of time until Nabonidus died. So the word father that we see here in this passage in verse 2 doesn't refer to an actual biological father. It refers to a male ancestor. And what we know then is that Nebuchadnezzar was the grandfather of the current king. King Belshazzar. But this tells us that a few decades have passed between the end of chapter 4 and the start of chapter 5. And the author of this book simply ignores those intervening years because nothing of spiritual significance has taken place. And so without any explanation or elaboration, he simply leaps across time because he now wants to tell us about King Belshazzar. This is a story we need to know because this king is going to experience the judgment of God. Chapter 5 records the final night of this king's life, and it's a night that begins with a party. And it's a senseless party. It's a party that shouldn't be held at all, particularly at this time. Babylon is at war with the Medo-Persian army, and the enemy is approaching the capital city. Babylon has some strong defenses, so Belshazzar may believe that the city can withstand an assault. But rather than display any fear or concern for their situation, rather than engage in any military planning, he decides to show off. He wants everyone to be impressed by his confidence and his power, and his wealth. So he throws a party for more than 1,000 members of his nobility along with their wives and concubines. Now, there's nothing wrong with having an enjoyable dinner party. There's nothing wrong with some good conversation and laughter and an enjoyable meal. This party was something else entirely. Babylon was known for such banquets, and they have been described by ancient historians as unbridled, blasphemous, drunken sexual events. The parties of Babylon would make a frat party look tame by comparison. It's a self-indulgent orgy. 
and a self-indulgent orgy may provide a few hours of physical pleasure. But they are pointless. At events like this, men and women made in the image of God, men and women made to honor God, engage in behavior that is dehumanizing. It's stupid and it's senseless. And that's true at any time, but particularly at this time, when you have an enemy at the gates, your attention should be elsewhere. Hosting this banquet is not what a wise king would do. Hosting this banquet at this point in time is not how a wise king would ask his leading citizens to invest their time when time may be short. Hosting this banquet is one of many signs that Belshazzar is unfit to rule. Now it's bad enough that he throws this party, but during the evening he makes a fatal mistake. He decides to drink from the gold and silver goblets which Nebuchadnezzar had stolen from the temple of God in Jerusalem when his army conquered that city many years earlier. And these goblets were used as objects of worship to participate in worship by faithful faithful Jewish people. And so these goblets symbolize devotion to the God of heaven and earth. And Belshazzar, he knows this. He knows what these goblets stand for. He knows what they represent. And so by his actions, he is deliberately insulting God. He's insulting God by taking these objects and using them to bring praise to the man-made idols of Babylon. In essence, he is saying to everyone at that banquet, look at me. Me and my kingdom are way more powerful than this foreign God. I'm more powerful than anyone or any God. And God expects more from people who rule nations. He wants the people who govern his world to acknowledge his rule. So God decides to get the attention of this ungodly king. And he's going to do so by interrupting this senseless party in a way guaranteed to get the attention of every person present. Let's look at what happens next. Verse 5. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared. Whew, that's a little weird. The fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. The king summoned the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. Then he said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck and he will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified, and his face grew more pale, and his nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. 
There's a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. He did this because Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing Try and imagine this scene. Think about what it would be like if this happened in your house. You have some friends over for dinner, and suddenly a disembodied hand appears and starts writing on the wall. I mean, that's eerie. I get get goosebumps just thinking about it. And I'm not surprised that the king reacts with some fear and immediately calls for his wise men. He needs some explanation for this very weird supernatural event. What do these words mean? What do they say? What message is he supposed to get from this? And yet none of his counselors have a clue. They can't tell the king what he desperately wants to know. And fortunately, the queen shows up. Now, we know that all of Belshazzar's wives are already at the party. So this queen is not his wife. This is probably the widow of King Nabonidus. She's an older woman, and she's been around for a while, and she knows some things that Belshazzar doesn't know. So she's able to tell him about Daniel, who back in the day was the top advisor to King Nebuchadnezzar. And based on this interchange... We can infer that Daniel is no longer part of the king's court. It must be that at some point he was sidelined by King Nabonidus because Belshazzar's never even heard of Daniel. In fact, the queen may be one of the few people left in the palace who knows who Daniel is. But she remembers. And she remembers him as a man of great wisdom man with the ability to interpret dreams and solve riddles. And this writing on the wall definitely is a riddle. So Daniel, at this moment, is just the man that the king needs. So Daniel is summoned, and he's going to give the king a very painful message, a message of doom. Verse 13. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I've heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and to tell me what it means, but they couldn't explain it. Now I've heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you'll be clothed in purple. That's the color of royalty. And have a gold chain placed around your neck, and you'll be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. Your majesty... 
The Most High God gave your father Nebuchadnezzar sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor because of the high position he gave him. All the nations and peoples of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death, he put to death. Those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. And those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed, deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like the ox. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, Belshazzar, his son, You've not humbled yourself, though you knew. You knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand, but you did not. You did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. And this is the inscription that was written. Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. Here's what these words mean. Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Whew. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. What a scene. Daniel shows up and the king promises him incredible rewards if he's able to decipher the words and explain their meaning. And Daniel tells the king, keep your gifts. I'm not interested. I don't think he says this rudely. I think he says it just matter-of-factly because he knows that his role is to serve as God's messenger to earthly authorities. That's why God gave him the gift of interpretation. And Daniel doesn't need earthly incentives to do God's work. And this, this attitude and behavior by Daniel is one of the many signs we see in this book of his great faith. And think about what's going on. His skills are desperately needed here, so it would be easy for him to make this moment all about him, to respond in a self-centered way. But this moment isn't about Daniel, it's about God, it's about God's message to this king. And to be faithful in this moment means that Daniel should not make himself the center of attention or try to turn this situation to his personal advantage. Daniel simply needs to tell this king what God has to say. And it seems to me that in our very self-centered age, Daniel's behavior is a great example. And he reminds us that we need to use our God-given talents and abilities and gifts primarily to honor God, not primarily to call attention to ourselves, nor to enrich ourselves. God equips us to honor Him. 
And Daniel now as a man of faith is standing face to face once again with an arrogant, evil, and ungodly king. Many years earlier, he had a similar confrontation with Nebuchadnezzar. Now he is doing it here with Belshazzar. And he looks this king in the eye and delivers God's message of judgment. Judgment based on Belshazzar's failures. Failures as a person and failures as a king. Daniel reminds Belshazzar that that Nebuchadnezzar, his ancestor, was stripped of his power and afflicted with madness. Nebuchadnezzar may have been the ruler of a great empire, but he still was accountable to God and needed to acknowledge that fact. And he only was restored to his throne when he was willing to say, you, God, are the final authority, not me. And he humbled himself before the God of heaven and earth. And Belshazzar, he knows his family history. He knows what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And yet he's still willing to insult God and defy God. All of his actions deny the reality that there is a God whose power and authority are greater than his own. And so God sends this writing on the wall to remind this king who is really in charge. Now, it's rather, <clears throat> excuse me, it's rather interesting that the greatest minds of Babylon can't, can't even make out the words, let alone interpret their meaning. We don't know why. It's possible that these words were written in some foreign language that they didn't know. It's possible that they were written in the form of a cryptogram that needed to be decoded. But however he did it, God intentionally obscured the words in order, to, in order to get his messenger, Daniel, in front of the king. Our sovereign God is orchestrating events to accomplish his specific purposes in this moment. And Daniel, because of his gift of interpretation, the gifts of wisdom he's been given by God, he can not only read the words and discern what they say, he can understand then God's message to the king. And it's a message of doom contained in four cryptic words. Mene, mene, tekel, parson. Mene refers to the counting of money. Tekel refers to the weighing of goods. And parson, or paras, both those words are used here, they are plural and singular forms of the same word, and they refer to dividing large amounts of money into smaller units, such as when we take a dollar and break it down into four quarters. In other words, all of these, are, all of these terms describe financial transactions. They're the kind of terms that would be used to describe the accumulation of wealth. And rulers like Belshazzar love to accumulate wealth. And they love to count their money. And they love to weigh out the gold and silver and other valuable objects that they, that they accumulate when they conquer other nations. Rulers like this believe that wealth and power go together and they love to show it off. And that's exactly what the king is doing by throwing this extravagant party and by drinking from God's gold and silver goblets. By writing this message on the wall, 
It's as if God is saying to Belshazzar, you want to talk about wealth? Let's talk about real wealth. I've added up your value as a ruler and it amounts to nothing. It amounts to nothing because you value the wrong things. And therefore, I'm going to divide up your empire and give it to others who are more suited to rule. Belshazzar and his kingdom are wealthy and powerful only in the things of this world, things that do not last. And it is a perpetual human problem to run after the wealth and power of this world. That's why Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, urges men and women to store up treasure in heaven. Jesus wants us to know that the only savings account which really matters is our spiritual savings account. We must invest in God and his kingdom and in the values of his kingdom. And so as we see this confrontation between Daniel and King Belshazzar, we see an incredible contrast between these two men. Here is Daniel standing alone, a man of faith who says, I don't need earthly rewards. I just want to be faithful to do what God has called me to do. And then we see Belshazzar, this king who does not care about the people over whom he rules. He worships money, he worships power, he worships himself. Belshazzar chooses greed over God. And that's the wrong way to invest. And as a result, for this king and for this empire, the party is over. Verse 29, then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck, and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, that very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. It's common to punish messengers when they bring bad news. But King Belshazzar doesn't do that. To his credit, he keeps his word and he promotes Daniel. I find myself wondering why. I I wonder if he perhaps somehow thinks that if he honors God's messenger, that maybe God might change his mind. But if that's what he does think, then he's missing the point. He should be pursuing God, not promoting Daniel. And in response to a message like this, Belshazzar should be throwing himself upon the mercy of God. Because here's something that is true that we never can forget. Even when God issues a final sounding word of judgment, he is willing to withhold that judgment when people sincerely repent. We have a crystal clear example of this in the book of Jonah. Jonah the prophet is sent to Assyria, an empire, a nation that was just as evil as Babylon, and Jonah brings them a message of doom. It's a message with no word of hope, and yet the king in response repents. He calls his nation to repentance, and in response to that sincere repentance, God withholds his judgment. 
And our God always is willing to do that because our God delights to show mercy. That could have been true here. But Belshazzar refuses to turn to God or submit to God or even acknowledge God. And as a result, that very night, his empire comes to an end. That very night, the enemy successfully breaches the defenses of the city. Belshazzar placed his trust and confidence in the wrong place and in the wrong things. He trusted in his kingdom. He trusted in the wealth of this world and the power of this world rather than trusting in the kingdom of God. And so the king is killed, Babylon falls, and Darius the Mede takes control of this kingdom. It's the end of an era. It's the end of an empire. This is a fascinating story. A fascinating piece of history. How do we apply it to our own lives? How do we take this story and make it something more than just an interesting and unusual history lesson? I think there's several things that we can note. First, this story reminds us that our God is sovereign. He is at work in this world. <clears throat> and he will take action where and when he sees fit. And even the most powerful rulers cannot stand against him. And this leads to the second point. Our God is concerned about people who rule in his world. As I said in the beginning, we see God act in the Bible, in the lives of rulers, again and again and again. And I believe that God still does this today. And we may not always see it, but He is at work accomplishing His purposes. I do think He looks at us here in our nation a little differently because we have some say in our government. The people of Babylon did not. And for this reason, I believe that we bear some responsibility to God. We bear some accountability to God for our own leaders. And this means we need to pray and vote wisely. We need to pray and vote biblically. We need to pray and vote based on the values of the kingdom of God, not based on the values of a particular political party. We must not view any politician or earthly leader as our ultimate authority, as the person who's going to save us or as the one who's going to provide us with safety and security. That is God's job. God is our king. We serve him. Rulers come and go, but God will last forever and so will his kingdom. That's where our allegiance must lie. And here's something that I wonder about. In every election season, increasingly hear Christians from across the political spectrum complain about the quality of the major party candidates. And yet, we vote for them. And we keep voting for them. What if the church of Jesus Christ said, as a group, enough Enough. None of these people are fit to lead in God's world. And we will find other people to vote for. 
I wonder what kind of message that would send to our world about who we are and what we value and about our willingness to be different. The third point to highlight is that this story reminds us that we must value the right things. The pursuit of wealth and power and physical self-indulgence is a sign of greed, not godliness. And God does not want to see those things in His rulers, and He does not want to see those things in His people. He wants us to be like Daniel. And even though we are mired in an ungodly world, we, like Daniel, can live as men and women of faith. But to do that, it means we need to make the pursuit of God rather than the pursuit of earthly rewards our highest value. That's how we invest in what lasts. When you and I resolve to truly embrace the values of God's kingdom and let those values define how we live, that's when we can live by faith and make a true difference in this hurting, broken, and confused world.